to Women Making Moves, where we celebrate the moves that women are making. This is Amy Pons. I'm a Master Certified Life Coach and Soul Awakener. I'm joined today with Elaine Lynn Herring. Elaine is a facilitator, an author, and a speaker. She works with leaders to diagnose challenges and build capacity in negotiation, influence, and conflict management skills. She has worked on six continents and facilitated executive education at Harvard, Dartmouth, Tufts, UC Berkeley, and UCLA. She's the former advanced training director for the Harvard Mediation Program and a lecturer on law at Harvard Law School. She coaches women and minoritized individuals navigating executive leadership in majority white spaces. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Unlearning Silence, How to Speak Your Mind, Unleash Talent, and Live More Fully, published by Penguin in 2024. Elaine, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be with you and be with Women Making Moves. Thanks, Elaine. And right after I got your notes and bio for today, I immediately went on Amazon and pre-ordered my book. So I cannot wait. So everyone, it's available on Amazon right now to pre-order and it's exciting. Get it in your cart and your, your purchase basket. So Elaine, what are the moves that you're excited to be making right now? all of the moves, (laughs) all of them, you know, it's also the moves I didn't ever expect to be making. And what I mean by that is I've been in the field of leadership development for more than a decade. And number one, I didn't know leadership development was a field. I didn't know that helping people learn how to communicate more effectively was something that you could do. Maybe if you were a psychologist, maybe if you were a I don't know. It just wasn't in the portfolio of things I thought someone could do in life as I was growing up. And as I've been in the field, people have written books. And I always said, you know, a lot of what people are writing seems to be regurgitating what other people are saying. And so I don't want to do that. I don't want to take up space just parroting what other people have to say. And several years ago, when I stumbled on this idea of silence, I thought this actually this is new. This seems additive. And the move I started to make is to see if that was just something in my head or whether it would resonate with other people. Turns out it does resonate. It resonated with book publishers. And so I'm gearing up to share these ideas with the world in the next six months, which is all the things about making moves, daunting, exciting, surprising, confusing, hopeful, but that's the next big move is to really say, I apparently have something to say that is a value to people and to this world and to make the move to actually share it. You absolutely have something to say, and it's so valuable. Are you speaking primarily to women and is it all women? I love that question. I think of who I'm talking to in two categories. One is people who have been silenced. So that certainly can be women of all different backgrounds. We've had to contort ourselves to fit in to workplaces that were not designed for us. We've had to contort ourselves to try to live up or navigate through the expectations of who we are as women in the world, as caretakers, as helpers, quote unquote, of what we're supposed to look like, what we're supposed to care about. And in that process, really needing to silence the very things that we care about, that make us unique, that make us powerful. So one group of people that I'm speaking to is people who have been silenced, men or women. And typically it is people with subordinated identities, those who are not dominant in a space, whether gender, religion, sexual orientation. Those are the folks, we are the folks who tend to be silenced, often not intentionally, but just you're not the majority, you're not the norm, and therefore you are othered. The other category of people I'm speaking to is what I call well-intentioned people. And I put most of us in that category, well-intentioned leaders, well-intentioned family members, well-intentioned loved ones who say, I love you, I care for you, 
And yet in the same breath, their actions fail to support the integrity of who we are and who we want to be. And so part of the mix of these two categories of people that certainly overlaps is my frustration with the advice that people often give of speak up, just, you know, say more of what you want to say, be more of who you want to be. And it's just not that easy because when you do that, you incur the backlash and the ramifications. And if you can't stomach that, the advice to just be more of who you are really falls flat and at times is damaging. And so the need for the two audiences is to acknowledge, yes, each of us should find and use our voices. And it's often impossible, if not far harder to do that if the people around you don't realize the ways that they continue to intentionally or unintentionally silence you. So there's a joint responsibility that we have to acknowledge because our lives and who we are and how we show up in this world are far too inextricably tied to each other to just say, it's your issue, women or people who have been silenced, people with subordinate identities. So there's an ownership aspect of how I show up in the world impacts the people around me. And I can't put the blame on them to show up differently if I'm not willing to change the ways that I'm sending messages and perpetuating the norm that keeps them small, keeps them in knots, prevents them from being who they really are. I would have loved having you as a leader in the workplace Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you provide safety and that space for us to speak up. In a lot of ways in the corporate world, I was like a bull in a china shop. I was the one who was always trying to go hard for whether it be for the right thing, by the way, it wasn't just not a bull in a china shop toward people, but like toward solving problems. So what ended up happening is that I had those knots you're talking about because behind closed doors, I was getting counseled to not be so much, to not take up as much space. And then I would go into the next meeting and not take as as much space. And then I would be counseled again for not raising, again, (laughs) raising enough of my voice. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do here. And like, I was constantly in those knots that you're talking about. You can't win. We can't win. (sighs) And if we can't win, then actually we collectively can't win. And it feels really impossible. And the costs are usually typically borne by us, those who are silenced, because the goalpost and the requirement also keeps changing. And you're left with what the hell am I supposed to do? Like who am I at work and at home? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And me being a bull in a china shop is the way I beautifully get not just get things done, but help raise the vibration of humanity overall. That's me being a ball in a china shop and it's gorgeous. And that's what helped me realize to make the moves that I've been making is to your point, we've all been in those. If you haven't been, I can describe it. And Lillian, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Being in two different environments in a workplace, I'll I'll Mm -hmm. use workplace for now in a workplace setting where there is like a higher ranking leader that says what I'm thinking. I'm like, this is safe. And you see Mm -hmm. the whole room light up because we suddenly have permission. Yeah to say all the things my body is lighting up right now. So you feel so empowered and so magical and so strong. Mm. And then conversely, I've been in the rooms where I have something, I'm chomping at the bit. I have this rising anxiety in my chest Mm -hmm. and in my throat because I know what needs to be said. Mm -hmm. But I've also have gotten that proverbial kick under the table. Like, don't don't you dare. And so I sit, I sit with that burning feeling in my throat because I can't say anything. And then I walk away and like, what, Mm -hmm. what value did I add to that Mm -hmm. meeting? And not at all because the person speaking or leading it just wanted to hear what they had to say. And so, and and that feeling perpetuates itself to the, where the grander, what value do I have in general? Mm. And that becomes really dangerous. Completely. Because the, what value do I have in general is also why am I here? It gets to self-worth do I matter? Do I have value beyond performing the duties that are expected of me to fit in the box that frankly aren't driven by any agency of our own? And we become shells of the people that we are and shells of the people we could be. And I'm just feeling the pain with you because so many- You feel my energy. 
in those roles, even when leaders, well-intentioned leaders say, tell me anything, my doors open, but the response, sort of the immediate clap back, even if it's not intended to shut down the conversation, right? It's the kick under the table. It's the slap on the hand. It's the jerking of the chain to get back in line. In line. And so there's such a question of what workplaces and families and communities are we wanting to create? Because if this is just about rank and file, you all are robots, you all perform as you're commanded to, to produce widgets, then let's at least be honest, intellectually honest, that that's what this workplace is going to be. Because the betrayal of language of we're inclusive, we care, you know, all this corporate jargon that then gets the eye rolls because it's not backed up with reality. It's, I think that, that whiplash, that discovery, that betrayal is almost the most painful part. Because if I went into this knowing that you didn't care about me as a person, we were going to have a sterile transaction of money and services. Great. We know what we're signing up for. And I can also budget my energy, my bandwidth, my heart, my life, and then leave the work at the door. And we're even seeing that just in the broader shift or 180 on DEI in corporate workplaces, right? But I think even more so in personal relationships. If I say I love you, that comes with some expectations that you would love me, not with all the terms and conditions in a legal agreement. If I did this, if I showed up this way, but you would be curious, you would hold space for me. You would seek to honor the parts of myself that feel vulnerable to share. And we can't do that if we don't realize that the ways we're showing up continues to incentivize the other person to withhold those parts or communicates that we just don't care. And the part that frustrates me the most is, I think we're all in this pickle of most people would say, I do care. I am well-intentioned. Okay, your intentions only go so far. Let's talk about the impact you're actually having. And can we raise awareness to that impact and then make different choices going forward? Elaine, yes. Because something that you and I are not saying is that we're not suggesting that the most hardwired corporations have to suddenly stop their work to like Mm -hmm. have a kumbaya. We're not saying (laughs) that. What we're, what we're saying is that we both, and I love your thoughts on this too. We've both been in those workplace situations where we do know those leaders that are well-intentioned. And then it takes one phone call, email, text message from either a higher ranking leader or a customer kerfuffle. Mm -hmm. And then it's all hands on deck. And then the feelings and the humanity part of it gets a pin put in it. So from your perspective, I want to think that humans want to up level and want to be better humans and want to give space to each other Mm -hmm. to grow into something where everyone matters and their voice does matter. Mm -hmm. These hardwired machines And many of the companies that both have had experience with or in and are aware of Mm -hmm. that they're hardwired and they're getting so much stuff done and they're making billions of dollars. And there's thousands of people that are feeling disenchanted, harmed, abused, Mm -hmm. and at the least of it, not listened to, not to suggest that's trivialized, but Mm -hmm. it's the whole spectrum. How would you even approach? What do those organizations need to do? To start, and I'm not suggesting we'd have the answer today. We're starting to see the employee engagement surveys. We're starting to see everyone's really, I just saw an article yesterday that a lot of organizations are actually regretting the way that they mandated return to office because they weren't listening to your point. They weren't listening to their people and didn't ask like, what do you want to do? So we're seeing actually some of the fallout. So you as Elaine, Lynn Herring, that are making these beautiful moves in the world. If a senior leadership team came to you and said, we want to make a major decision, what do we do? So we Mm. keep the humanity in that decision. Where would you start? I can see the roadmap played out in my mind right now of all the different steps and levers. I'd actually turn it back to that senior leadership team and say, why? Yes. Why? Because it sounds nice. It sounds like maybe a good PR move. It sounds like maybe a good recruiting move, but why 
if you're not going to keep that commitment, don't even go down this path. Are you really ready to go down this path and go all in? Because once you put the stake in the ground, we don't want the whiplash. We don't want the 180. It's going to undermine trust and credibility even more. So I'd start with why. But I'd also ask who has decision-making power on this senior leadership team? Because you are not a monolith. Where are you really right now? Who has the power? Is it the CEO and president? How committed are you? Are you from the top willing to put a stake in the ground to say, we are not going to maximize shareholder profit to the fullest amount possible because we're going to spend and invest in different ways. And we're going to do it because of these reasons. How much support do you have from the board? Let's get our ducks in a row. Yes, That's one place I'd start. So the executive leadership team, where are you really? And why are you there? And let's be rigorously honest about it. Because there's actually no judgment if you choose a different way. We just need to be honest about it. The other place I'd start is with each of us. Because we fundamentally underestimate the power that we have. And that's something that all the systems tell us, right? You're just a cog in a wheel. You have to unionize to have any power. But where do movements start from? They start with one person and they start with a first follower who's willing to say, me too. And we also know that one quote unquote bad apple can really shape the culture. So there is a question of day in and day out, the choices that we make in all of our interactions, what world are we building in that meeting? When I see the backlash to Amy from the leader, do I disrupt that? Do I say, actually, I agree with Amy? Or we're not thinking about these implications because I don't want us to underestimate the power of one individual to then build coalitions, to build movements. And it is slow, painful work that is arduous and we don't see overnight returns. But there is something of humanity and agency in each of our choices that then can inspire and encourage the people around us to do the same. So to me, silence breeds silence, right? This is how we shape culture. Culture is the norms that are created and perpetuated within an organization or an entity. Silence breeds silence. Voice also breeds and inspires voice. My seeing you, Amy, making moves, navigating the confusion, everything that comes with new territory suggests to me, oh, I might be able to do it too. Or there is a different way. The audacity to dream up a different future is often something that we don't engage and that our current environments don't allow. Because if we were to dream, we can only imagine what might happen. But to see how someone else shows up, how someone else treats someone else, all of that has power. That could be at work. That could be at home. That could be in your family unit. That could be with a friend, right? But each of us has agency to choose how we're showing up. And that magnified, amplified does have power. It absolutely does. Today's society, today's humanity, where we're at today, and you mentioned whether it be at home, in the workplace, so many environments do not allow the safety of that agency. Mm -hmm. And if I continue to use the example of like a return to work mandate, there was likely a leader in that room that was like, Ooh, oh gosh, this is going to, they knew what was going to happen. And Mm -hmm. also they didn't feel the, to your point, the agency or the autonomy to say, I know my organization, Mm -hmm. I know how they're going to react. And maybe they did voice it even, but there was a sense of we're doing this. Mm-hmm. with or without you. Yeah. And what I hear in my clients are a lot of those mid-level folks, mid-level mm-hmm. managers, that there was a couple of things that came down from the top when this decision was made. And, and let me know if you want to go broader. I just am pinpointing this example because I am closest to it. With the return to work mandate, it was rolled out as a guise of being inclusive, being better together, being mm-hmm. more productive, which by the way, in a particular company that I have in my mind, the most successful year in history was 2021 when we were all at home. So Mm -hmm. fundamentally that was untrue. So Mm -hmm. to your point about the rapport or the backlash of trusting in Mm -hmm. the team, when that came down was we're more productive together. Everyone was like, well, wait a second. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there was no flexibility given. And then the the fallout, the brunt was on those mid-level managers and there wasn't any support given to them. So suddenly 
their quality of life and mental health deteriorated over this last eight months or whenever companies have come back and now they're on their way out. Yeah. And again, that's sort of kind of like those thousands of people we think about that were impacted by this decision of if they brought humanity in and said, how do we do this? Hmm. I can imagine that room. There's a lot of things that can come up. We don't have time or money to get, and they do have money and time, but <laughs> you know, money and time to go survey the entire org and see how they feel about it. Hmm. Had they, had they though, how beautiful would that have been? Well, and I'd push a little further because Please, some organizations yeah. did. And oh, sure. the language that you're using to say the decision came down. Sure. Fundamentally, some decisions are going to be held solely by mm-hmm. senior leadership or mm-hmm. by whoever on the leadership team. Mm-hmm. And that person is making a very conscious decision of whose opinions, whose needs, whose humanity matters more. Because if we look at the breakdown on return to office, it is also there's differentials across race and gender, but microaggressions are you have a bit more protection against microaggressions, particularly with race, when you are remote, when you can click out of the meeting rather than having to run into them in the hallway. And so it really, to me, begs the question of whose needs and wellness are we prioritizing? Because that decision is often also linked to managers, particularly senior execs, have operated in a world paradigm in a face-to-face context. And the skill set to lead or to manage remotely is a distinct skill set that is different than how you would interact, manage, and lead in person. You knew how to operate when you could go chat or pop up. Like, you know, the topics that you talk about, you know, that you go play golf together, all those things. And to manage or lead or communicate remotely when you don't have those same tools that you have relied on for decades is fundamentally a different skill. So the question I've been asking is, are senior leaders, executives willing to learn a different skill set? To your point, the answer is no, because we prefer our own comfort. And I mean, it's daunting to learn a new skill set. It is daunting to admit, particularly at that level, that what you've done and the skills you've used and the ones that have gotten you to where you are, aren't going to work in the same way. And, you know, it's hard to find the right button to click into the Zoom room and all of these things. But how do you build connection How do you facilitate psychological safety? How do you have productive conversations in a virtual environment is fundamentally different. It is one that digital natives have built natively, right? There are people I've never met, whether it's in a gaming context or in an online community. The fact that I've never met them, maybe never seen their face, never had a in real time conversation doesn't diminish the reality that there is a real relationship and connection there. But that's very different than how many of our current leaders grew up and the skill sets that they developed. But my biggest disappointment is the lack of intellectual honesty about the choices that we're making, who we're prioritizing, and frankly, the lack of willingness. And I am completely biased about this as a woman, as an Asian woman, as a mother who my life would not work if I couldn't put the sheet pan dinner in the oven at 4.30 before my last meeting. You know, it's just how life works in this system, but it is a different skill set. It is a learnable skill set if that's where we chose to prioritize. And most large companies didn't choose to prioritize in that way. You're amazing. (laughs) You just gave voice to the senior teams that it's easy to be mad at. Yeah. You gave a beautiful different perspective of the fact that we're creatures of habit, we're humans. And what came up for me when you were saying that was in those rooms, in those decision-making rooms, I wish that there could have been something for every one of those senior leaders to feel safe, to Mm. express their true, I want to say necessarily insecurities, but things that they were scared about, things where they were discomfort. And I'm not sure, again, we, I wasn't there. You weren't there. We weren't there. I wish they could have felt safe to really explore those conversations to say, listen, I want people to come back because I don't know how to communicate my best self over Zoom. Mm. Cool. Can you imagine that vulnerability? Well, that also assumes the self-awareness to be able to. Sure. That's fair. And to be clear, not to defend senior leaders, but change is hard. Change is hard. Change is really hard. And we've all had enough to juggle. 
And so it can be a business decision that we're going to prioritize certain skill sets and needs and habits. And with every business decision comes ramifications. And we're starting to see that. But it's to your point, whether you include the the voices or not from the beginning. And I've done a lot of research that once again, on average in the United States, women hold most of the management of the household. And again, I'll say average, not every. So heading into pandemic, it was like, great, let's link arms. Let's do whatever it takes to make sure you can do your best. And I'm speaking to women. A lot of leadership was like, let's make it work for you. And let's make it really easy for you to be able to stay with us. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. So I think then the shift heading into 23 was like, remember all that stuff we did? Yeah, scratch that and come back. And you still had that crux of women being disproportionately impacted because mm-hmm. we know that on average in the United States, women bear the bulk of the mental, emotional load of the household, but also a lot of the physical duties, things of that nature. So you had a lot of, and this is the last thing I'll kind of say about senior teams and And this, by the way, this is not being for against senior leadership teams. It's just the fact that when you have a bulk of the same type of person, the way they, whether it be race, gender, orientation, when you have the same talking to each other, it's kind of impossible for you to see all of these other perspectives, especially as we know in the United States, who bears the brunt of the household duties. One of the most validating statistics I saw was from author, researcher, Nyla Firm Merchant, saying anytime you are less than 15% of the majority opinion, right? You, you are the, you are minoritized. You are 15% or less of the leadership team. You are constantly othered. The standard is higher. You are more likely to be cut out. And I was like, wow, you just described my entire career. Which then becomes internalized into I'm the problem. It is reframed into you lack confidence. Mm -hmm. It is reframed into imposter syndrome when really it's a systemic challenge. It's like, no, you're not including me. You're not including me. And even if I have a seat at the table, the seat at the table means very little because I'm window dressing. And if I don't fit into the idea of what role you think I should have, right? As an Asian woman, I'm supposed to be a hard worker. I'm a really good entry-level hire, but I quote unquote, don't have executive presence and leadership capacity. Those assumptions, those biases. And so when I challenge that and I'm the only, I'm the problem. I feel something rising in me. It's my protection of you. I want to go rage at whoever's <laughs> told you that you're I was not just taking a deep breath too. Let me not get ragey right now. Well, and the rage is, I imagine you would say, but don't let me put words in your mouth. The rage is real. And part of it is we don't talk about it. And so each of us individually, whether it is because we identify and present as female or identify and present as fill in the blank subordinated identity, we start to think it as us. That's why I start all of my coaching sessions with how's your heart. I asked you that today. I want to cut through what people are used to saying just to get through something. Yeah. But imagine how special and safe we can be. You have shown such a gorgeous light on the fact that every human just wants to be seen and heard, and you're helping shine a light for the people that have gotten categories as the other. Mm -hmm. And it's like going with the masses. I remember when we made decisions in a user experience, it was like always 80, 20. It's like, so 20%, we're okay with having a really shitty experience. That's what we're saying. And who's in that 80 and who's in that 20 every single time, whether by age, by class, by education. Mm, That's that part too. Mm -hmm. Thank you for allowing me to go into that space because it's a space that a lot of people I work with and for and talk to that are feeling really pinched and Mm -hmm. very disproportionately impacted right now. So I think it's a, it's an important subject to touch on. And I wish for every person that has a seat at the table to not be a, you said window dressing Mm -hmm. and to be able to share their unabashed truth of what is impacting them about the conversation. That's really the only way to move forward. I would wish that. And the precursor to that is each of us actually being able to hear those truths of ourselves, because the challenge is that if we spent so much time doing someone else's bidding, playing the role, we forget that we even have our own voice. We have our own thoughts, right? The question is, 
what would my leader want me to do? What would the company want me to do rather than what do I believe? What do I really think about this? And so if I were to offer even just one question to sort of get back to your self and the notion that you have a self is in every meeting, and you can start this quietly, it can be an internal process, but as you're listening, not be solving for what would my leader do? What would the company want me to do? What would the team want me to do? What would my family want me to do? But just what do I think? What do I think about this topic? What do I think about this decision? What do I think about this idea or notion? What do I think is missing from the conversation that I might want to add? And I would start there internally. And over time, you may choose to share those thoughts, but there's a rediscovery, a re-nurturing of our own voice that has so long been silenced and cut out, not only of the conversation externally, but internally to ourselves. Re-nurturing our voice. It's beautiful. So those are beautiful moves, Elaine, that you're making and that I hope everyone's able to hear. Like I have specifically how you're able to, at any level, bring forth someone's true authentic voice in a way that feels safe and authentic for them, but also to your point about helping others be able to receive. It's almost like it'd be cool if we could hit the mute button on egos and that's oversimplifying it. I know. And in the absence of being able to mute egos, there is even just a a detachment, a separation, right? It is not an either or, but a both and. Mm. I am noticing my reaction is one of defensiveness or confusion. At the same time, the person I want to be is opening, welcome, curious. And even just naming that is useful in the moment because you're reengaging your prefrontal cortex rather than just letting your amygdala ride where your Mm. ego and your defensiveness comes out. But do we have the self-awareness to say, this is how I'm feeling. This is how I want to be. Let me name both of them because they're both true and choose a way forward. Right. The ego in many times has been created to keep us safe. So it's honoring both and saying, okay, hey friends, how do we move forward together? And once you can get there. And to acknowledge that whether or not we intended to be, We are all acculturated into these systems that have arms and legs grabbed onto us so tightly. And so our own self-interest and our own ego is often intertwined with what we see as the value to us, the cost of us, what might I lose in terms of status, power, money, wealth, all of those things influence if I were to break away from the norm. This is where I think coaches can be really valuable. One of the many reasons, right? To really distill, how do I want to show up in the world? What am I living for? To disentangle or start to parse, what are the influences over me? How have I been shaped? How am I part of the systems? How is my self-interest intertwined with the systems? And then in all of that, what do I want to do going forward? If we each have one life to live, how do I want to live it? But it's hard work. Oh, it's such hard work. It's worthwhile, but it is hard work. (laughs) A beautiful segue into my next question, which is really not a question, but just deep diving a little bit on one of your posts that you actually made today. And I loved it so much. Want people to be candid? Ask this question. If you had a magic wand, what would you change? If you had a magic wand, what would you change about how sales and engineering are currently working or not working together? The client's proposed terms and conditions our weekly meetings, the organization, our onboarding process, how we're co-parenting, why it works, framing something as quote unquote magic wand. This temporarily remote of reality gets people thinking out of the box, gets to the pain points quickly, reveals deep wishes, creates a degree of psychological safety for naming what you really think because you can backpedal to qualify it as magic wand, not reality. Try asking this question in your next one-on-one as a team icebreaker, or to get honest feedback. Bonus, the other person gets a mini workout in speaking up about what they really want with the air cover that it's just magic. And yes, being a mother of a young child means that you have magic wands lying around the house. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. This ties beautifully to what we've been talking about. What motivated this post? And who are you talking to in this post? Hmm. I'm talking to the well-intentioned leader who in their heart of hearts, it's like, I am a safe person. I want you to be able to speak up. I want to hear your voice. 
And also let's acknowledge the challenge that those leaders are in, which is all of us come with our own baggage and history. You know, chapter one of my book is about the silence we learned that starts in our homes and our family systems. And we bring all of that into the workplace. And so you may not realize, I may not even realize that when I look at you, I see my father, right? And when you're asking me to say something, I'm like, oh, no, 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 I can't actually say that. Or I'm thinking of my last boss. I'm thinking of, you know, the, the counselor I had to work with when I was in school. And so the magic wand just cuts through that to say, if there was no consequence, if I didn't have to justify it, if I didn't have to back it up, if I wasn't thinking about all of the people that I've met in my life, but just in this hypothetical world, what would I say? And so I offer it as a tool for leaders who, or parents, I've heard parents say this too. I want my kid to actually tell me what they think, because even from a young age, they're taught and rewarded or punished based on what's appropriate or what someone, some ones, some systems have deemed are appropriate. So it's a tool for well-intentioned leaders, which I would say aren't just the people with the job title, but anyone who wants to lead and steward influence to invite in differences of perspective. Again, it's trying to unlock and break through the constraints, the boxes that we see, or that we bring forward into the conversation by saying, if you had a magic wand, right? If you were Harry Potter, and we're just waving the magic wand, what would you say? And that person is like, well, you don't like it. You're getting defensive. Your ego's coming to the mix. Not just that you ask the question, because that doesn't go well either. That becomes the blame game. But, oh, it was just hypothetical, right? It was just, it was just in a magical world. And the other thing that we know is that 80% of our work these days happens in teams. So once an idea is spoken, even if the decision maker doesn't latch onto it and agree to it right away, it is still in the collective data set of people who have now heard the idea. And the idea is like planting the seed and it can propagate going forward. So it's a question of how do we unlock and bring forward those ideas and those things that don't normally get spoken because there is value in them. And we're all thinking them usually. And so this question of not only how do we bring forward the information, but also on a relational aspect, reduce the isolation that people experience and thinking, oh, it's just me, or am I crazy? Right? And there's a whole ton of research about the health impacts of isolation that our Surgeon General has put together in the book together. So how do we solve for all of that so mm-hmm. that we are healthier people and more full versions of ourselves? A couple of things come to mind when you say that, like number one, in my experience, when humanity has been impeded, it's typically been due to someone else's sense of urgency, whether it be again, a higher ranking leader, the customer. Now, with that said, if it's like a fraud situation or if it's like a breach situation, yes, absolutely. That's a, I'm not talking about those. It's things that it's like, well, we've got to do this because someone said so. Mm-hmm. What if we were to take a step back and say like, and for so many years, you just have band-aids and band-aids and rubber mm-hmm. bands and scotch mm-hmm. tape. And so then it's like, oh gosh, mm-hmm. now, now if something if the slightest thing falls, like the whole world's going to come crashing down. So it does actually have business and bottom line implications if you keep band-aiding. So typically what I try to do in my team, I would talk about the good, better, best. Mm. And we tried to net out somewhere mm-hmm. that wasn't a scotch tape, but it also wasn't like the creme de la creme of, that was going to cost a lot of time and money. So I guess that's one piece is like the the sense of urgency and where it's coming from. And I guess, I think. I love back to your, like, why, why are we doing this? And then the second piece is that I love what you said about a lot of decisions are made from a team collective. And Mm -hmm. it typically comes down to like, who is selling it to the leader. And I always wanted the people, one, the person that like maybe came up with it or spearheading it. And unfortunately, if, if that leader had a, any sort of like a predisposition about the individual that's presenting to them, or if they, to your point, whatever they're bringing into that presentation, oh gosh, it can go off the rails real quick. And then it's like, wait again, what are we doing here? Like we've brought a really amazing solution and it's, we're not going to be able to do it because Mm -hmm. the leader wasn't able to really get to the crux of like what we're trying to say. So should the leader be part of those conversations? But then it's like, well, 
then why is there a leader? You know what I mean? There's well, <laughs> so, and where I go with that is also who owns the decision and why leadership doesn't mean, shouldn't mean that you are making every decision. Mm-hmm. Leadership is the wisdom to know who should be holding what decision. Mm-hmm. Your CEO doesn't know the details of many things. That's not what they're paid for. If you hold a formal leadership title, it is that self-awareness of actually this should this should or should not be my decision. I'm going to push it. I'm going to delegate it and not just faux delegate, but actually delegate to say, Amy, that's your call. Or it is, you know, whoever on your team mm-hmm. is closest to it because I'm going to take your recommendation. I'm going to ask enough questions to understand it, to sell it to my stakeholders if it needs to be at that level, or better yet, I will bring you into the conversation and give you social cover and share my social capital to say, I brought Amy into the conversation today because she is closest to the customer, because it is her team, right, who has done all the deep research. And frankly, she knows it inside out better than anyone else. I can still use my power and influence by giving, sharing my social capital. Mm-hmm. and frankly, getting out of the way. And that's what we don't see enough of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is, is that people are still grappling for self-worth at the highest levels. So then it becomes, I think of Katherine Johnson from Hidden Figures. She did all the calculations for the first space launch mission. And she, she said women, first of all, women weren't allowed in briefing meetings. She yeah. was like, I cannot do my work if you don't allow me in there. And yeah. she set that precedent going forward. And they, guess what? They, <laughs> she did the calculations in real time because she heard the most up-to-date information. So in so many situations, I'd love to hear your thoughts. The faux delegate that you said, mm-hmm. the faux delegation is what I interpret that to mean is that a leader has given a team kind of a problem to solve. Mm-hmm. And then when that team comes back with the solutions, they're told no. Is that faux delegation or is that yeah, something else? Totally. To me, faux delegation is it's your, not only your problem to solve, but your decision over what solution you want. But when you make that decision, and I've told you it's your decision to make, I then say, no, 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 no. Wrong call. Which completely undermines trust, which undermines any motivation to solve the problems, which makes people really tentative to do anything. Because what you're thinking is, look, if you already know what you're going to do, or you're not going to take my advice, why should I care? Why should I stay up? Why should I work the weekend trying to solve this when you're going to do what you're going to do anyways? And all of the engagement, investment that you talked about earlier decreases and the motivation, frankly, to do much because you mm-hmm. say you're delegating to me, but you're not really. Yeah. And by the way, if you're a leader who does that, that is the internal work to say why. A, a number one, do I realize that I'm doing that? And that's going to take some self-evaluation because if you have, it's unlikely that the people on your team are going to candidly tell you that you've been doing it. So process with a coach, process with a peer, process with a family member, don't process with your team. If you want to change it and put a stake in the ground and say, hey, I wonder if I've been doing this, I'm going to invite you to tell me if I'm undercutting you or faux delegating when I actually genuinely intend to delegate. I would set up a code word or something that makes it really easy for people to tell you that you're doing it, right? Hey, Jim, you're doing that thing. And then you have to respond well in the moment. But it is part of Mm -hmm. self-awareness. Are we leading the ways that we want and intend to lead? I think most leaders would say, I want my people to be empowered and equipped to do their best work. And so in what ways might we be getting in our own way that are actually ways that are possible to shift out of? It is possible to do things differently. It takes that commitment to humility, to self-awareness, and to continuous learning which is such a catchphrase in the corporate world, right? Everybody is about continuous learning, except sometimes when it comes to ourselves. I had a CEO once ask me, how do I find out if the reputations that I think of my team, my staff Mm. are really true? And I said, Mm. (laughs) okay, I love that you're asking. And number two, don't send HR in, don't Mm -hmm. send them in like those leaders in to say like give me candid feedback don't even go a rank or two below find either the entry-level person Mm -hmm. or the mid-level person 
And maybe you talk to ERG leaders that people do kind of gravitate toward. Maybe you send them in to ask. That's just one example. But I love what you're saying because a lot of times the only way that leaders find out that they're not actually walking their talk mm-hmm. is either through an exit survey. Well, and that's another reason too. I was like, I was, mm-hmm. I asked the CEO, I'm like, do you read exit surveys? Mm-hmm. Do you do exit surveys? <laughs> do, you, do you do them? Right. Mm-hmm. Do, do you do them? Do you read them? Mm-hmm. That's where you get all of that great information. Well, and one of the practices that I love is don't wait for the exit survey or the exit interview, do the stay interview, right? If oh, you yes. In three years, what would need to change? What keeps you coming to work or motivates you and ask the flip, what is demotivating? What is getting in the way of you doing your best work? And ask that now, ask that regularly is just part of the set of questions that we ask in a quarterly check-in or in an Mm -hmm. annual review, whatever your rhythm is so that people also know to expect those questions. The fact that those questions are baked into a regular check-in also signals a commitment and a curiosity and cultivates and increases the likelihood that people actually share. I chuckle because I shared with the same CEO, I said, your quarterly engagement surveys are skewed toward positive answers, just FYI. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the stay interview, that's genius. And I saw you, you hash, you tagged that in your, your post today. So the stay mm-hmm. interview, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. For the exit interview. If, if you want to retain people. And if these are not people you want to retain, I would encourage quick, decisive conversations that are upfront, that you aren't just passing the person on to the next manager in a reorg. Also take a look at who hired them and what are they attracting in? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have time, Amy. We don't have time. Part <laughs> part three and four of Elaine and Amy. Okay. So unlearning silence coming out in 2024. I ordered mine today, pre-ordered, and it says March 5th. I believe that'll arrive March 6th. I'm excited. Last question. What would you say to those folks who are in support of unlearning silence? What would you mm-hmm. help them understand to keep doing, whether it be in their, their own world prior to the book coming out? Cause we'll find out, but before then, what would you say to them that would, that want to do more to support unlearning silence? And then mm-hmm. also, what would you say to those who might give you kind of a raised eyebrow to mm-hmm. unlearning silence? How would you mm-hmm. help them? And again, it's not about forcing agendas, but it's like, how would you help them understand what you're trying to say? Thanks for the question. I love detractors. That's my legal training. And so let's start there for people who, and I, and I think there's a lot of people who are like silence. Why is it such a big deal? If you have never been silenced in your life, which many white cis men have not, I would encourage you to read the book because it is a different perspective that represents a perspective and a reality of the global majority of people. And I would challenge you to read with curiosity. And I've seen really beautiful aha moments for white cis men in senior leadership as they, for the first time, listen to the perspectives of their colleagues and really pausing to say, wow, I've never had to think about this. So I would invite that curiosity because if it doesn't resonate with you from the get-go, my guess is it is because it's not something that you've had to experience in your life. I've also had people who, when I share the title, visibly stop in their tracks of, and we're, we're using voice here, so I'll just swear. It's like, holy shit, unlearning silence. And I, I watch it on their face and I'm like, do you need a minute? And I had one guy who was like, yeah, I need a minute. Because silence is this invisible force that shapes our lives, how we lead, how we love. And if we're not aware of the role that it plays, it's just this silent undercurrent that compromises how we live. And so for people who are on the journey like me of unlearning silence, it is how do I wrestle with my relationship with silence, the ways that I've benefited from it, because silence is often a survival tactic, particularly in these workplaces that we've been talking about. And my encouragement is that the phrase unlearning silence has the active verb in it for a reason. It's not unlearn silence and then you're done. It is a constant unlearning that we continue. And so as much as I am pro-learning, there's also a question of, it's not just what do we add, but what might I shed? What might I have learned 
And do I have, do I make the active choice of what I want to keep and what I want to leave behind as I continue to move forward in my life, in my career, in living the one life that I have? So I'd invite folks to join in this journey that is ever evolving, often daunting, entirely rewarding. And my wish and hope is that more of us feel seen, known, and heard and honored in our common humanity. Elaine, where do we find you? Hmm. I am on LinkedIn basically every day. So Elaine Lynn Herring on LinkedIn. I'm also aware that LinkedIn is a public platform. And so you're probably connected to your boss. And so if you want the real deal, I have a monthly newsletter that goes out about the middle of every month. You can sign up at hello.elainelynherring backslash newsletter. I'm sure we'll put that in the show notes as well. And I'd love to connect because I said earlier that our lives are inextricably tied. And what I am struck by is I am very much on this journey of unlearning my own silence, believing that I have a voice and hearing from different folks worldwide about how these ideas resonate or impact their lives is encouraging and strengthening my own voice. So if you have reacted to, commented on a post, sent me a DM, just thank you for being part of my journey. And Amy, thank you for holding space here for me, my voice and sharing in this dream of the world that could be. Thank you for allowing me the safe space. Thank you for sharing it with me. Of course. You've had so many great nuggets. Are there any closing remarks that you'd like to leave us with? You are worthy, not by nature of where you work, what school you went to, who you're friends with, what's in your bank account, but because you are human and you are beautifully and wonderfully made. That truth that we are worthy hopefully cuts through all the ego, all the posturing, all the reactive defensiveness that then often harms the people around us and the very relationships we want to nourish. You are worthy. Thank you, Elaine.